I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Lukey B. How's it going? <laughs> uh, it's okay, although I just realized I'm not even supposed to have the phone with me where I am right now. I'm in the bathroom. Not, I'm not going to the bathroom. I'm just in here. And uh, that was a whole part of this project we're doing this week. It's like, yeah. you know, better phone hygiene, like literally and figuratively, like just not <laughs> having my phone with me at all times. But of course, you just got busted. Yeah, I know. How did you do on your projects? I did amazing. Really? Well, <laughs> in terms of phone hygiene, I was very hygienic. Okay, well, good. That makes one of us. All right, I'm walking down to uh, the office. Hold on. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, should we go ahead and do the show, I guess? Why not? Hey, Molly, are we recording? Yes, we are. All right. Uh, take it away, Elena. <laughs> From PRX, it's Livewire! Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire House Party! This week, with writers Daniel M. Ortberg and Michael Arsenault, and music from Prom Queen. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of Livewire, Lou! Thank you very much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Elena, do uh, do I sound different this week? Um, uh, I, I, Maybe richer or there's fewer peas being popped. I changed ooh. the windscreen on my microphone, which <sighs> in this day and age, that constitutes a big event in my life. <laughs> well, um, now that you mention it, I do. your tones are decidedly more dulcet. Thank you. That's what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. We have a great one in store for you this week. We're going to talk to Daniel M. Ortberg later on. He writes the uh, Dear Prudence advice column for Slate. Uh, we're also going to hear music from Prom Queen. Mm-hmm. And as always, we like to ask the audience a question. Uh, this week we asked, what's a positive change that you're going to keep from this time. I think all of us have had to really evolve and change a lot, and a lot of it has been stressful and not great, but there are at least a few 
little changes to life, I think, that some of us are going to try to keep with because it's actually been sort of a positive. In fact, Elena, you and I, as has already been referenced, we sort of embarked on this self-improvement project, uh, which mm-hmm. we're going to report back on a little bit later in the show. It sounds like you did better at the project than I did. I don't know about that. I might be bragging. First, though, uh, I wanted to invite somebody over to this little house party. His name is Michael Arsenault, and he's this really fascinating writer. He's got a new book out called I Don't Want to Die Poor, uh, and it is a collection of essays about a lot of things, but in particular the impact that student loan debt has on people from marginalized communities, including to this day... This guy, Michael Arsenault, he has one New York Times bestselling book under his belt, and he is still getting calls from bill collectors related to his student loan debt. This guy has two books out. One of them is a bestseller, and he's still dealing with this. It seems like this is a really relevant conversation right now Mm -hmm. because a lot of the same people that are getting crushed by student loan debt are also getting hit really hard financially from everything else related to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's dial him up. Michael Arsenault, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, You're joining us from where? Uh, I'm in Harlem now. Okay. What's the scene in Harlem right now? Um, It's a beautiful day out, so I have more of the fear of God in me than usual when I go outside (laughs) in a mask and gloves. Oh, right. Um, Because what unites all races is the trifling instinct to not social distance properly um so, so it's beautiful in harlem but i'm also kind of reminded that like you know I, I had planned to move to la around this time it was this is actually my um anniversary it's my seven-year anniversary in new york Whoa. Uh, oh wow not lucky because i'm the, ready to go uh, <laughs> that's supposed to be the dividing line when i lived there everybody said if you go one day over seven years you can never leave new york like you get oh, trapped no. <laughs> Um, I found this book just uh, to be such a fascinating read, and it's thank you. It's your 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 writing style is so funny and full of so many great references um, from pop culture and other places, and yet it's about a really serious topic, which is uh, you know debt and what that does to people, particularly people in marginalized communities. For somebody who's hearing this on the radio right now, and maybe they can't identify with like how a college degree can really change the course of their life because it was just a given they were going to go to college. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what it was like for you, what it represented for you as a young person in Houston? Well, you know, I think in this country for a lot of people, we're also this dream that social mobility is like the ticket to kind of like basically rising class. But like specifically for marginalized people, in my case, like being black and Southern working class, um, I can only think of black people who kind of do well to do, who either got a job through the government, which is, you know, a large employer a lot of times, particularly for black people when they were able to enter the middle class or through a college education. I don't come from a middle class background. I'm very much like working class, lower middle class. Some might interpret as poor. I've seen the divide on that. But that said, like, I just don't come from money. So a college degree for me represented a, a way to have kind of like the kind of life of basically when my mom got cable, <laughs> we could afford cable uh-huh. for a little bit. And I was able to watch stuff on the news or like to stuff read the newspapers or like basically mirror like the white guys that I saw. Like, you know, by the time I discovered David Sedaris, I didn't realize it was such a roadblock <laughs> to becoming David Sedaris if you happen to be somebody <laughs> like me, you know? <laughs> you learn those things along the way. Um, I, when I announced my first book uh, in the trades, I Can't Date Jesus, I gave them no to say, just say it's like David Sedaris if his dad had gold teeth. Um, <laughs> that made sense for me. <laughs> yeah. I still think it does, but yeah. I basically write about really serious, dark stuff, but with humor because, um, and this is kind of like the difference is, like, respectfully, like, 
I'm black, don't come from money, and this country doesn't like people like me. So while I can make fun of the everyday things that happen in life in the same way a lot of those writers do, like I like Sloan Crosley, the reality is that my everyday life is just so different. So even mm-hmm. in the theme of the book with I Don't Want to Die Poor, it's about student loan debt. Like student loan debt impacts, I mean, clearly every American, but mm-hmm. it can impact some harder than others. Like I got a degree, did everything I was supposed to do, all the metrics you're supposed to say, but they still had this belief that like, oh, you're black and gay. Ooh, I don't think anybody wants to buy that. So um, mm. that's just like certain things. Like I'm going to have to deal with racism, even if I were born with a silver spoon in my mouth, you know, this presumption. Right. So a college degree in a lot of ways is just kind of an, another tool for me to kind of get ahead or at least have even a fraction of what's a fair shake, a fairer shake for everybody else. This is Live Wire House Party. We're talking to Michael Arsenault. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. Your first book, I Can't Date Jesus, was a New York Times bestseller at the same time as you're like losing your health care coverage. Like yes. this is the weird <laughs> duality of your life, right? Yeah, I really wanted to kind of remove this idea of what, you know, success looks like, particularly like in terms of a writer, because people kind of, you know, I'm just as... Um, I'll say I didn't I didn't think I would end up like Carrie Bradshaw because I never believed she could really afford that rent because I knew how things worked. <laughs> that would be uh, we have to this is public radio. So we have to say that's the lead character from Sex and the City. Carrie Bradshaw is the lead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this idea of like, oh, you're a New York Times bestselling author. So you must have a lot of money. Well, actually, in publishing, um, it's kind of like poor people's uh, recording industry, which is even worse. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the idea that. Like, if I were a white guy, and I know this for a fact because I, based on the market, when you do a nonfiction book proposal, it's very much a business proposal as it is like your creative vision. So you have to say what's on the market and how you're different. There are people with the same level metrics as I did on paper or even not as, you know, known at the time. They still got deals faster than me and they got more money than me because, again, the presumption was they're more marketable. Um, so that was a lot of what I can't date Jesus. So, yeah, I, I made the New York Times bestseller list, which I'm so fortunate about, um, because it really matters. It actually helped other people get more money um, because now they can list my book as an idea of success. Mm-hmm. But at the same time as I write in the book, I made only $15,000 from that. You know, some people got like 50, 75, 100. I know people got even more. And people yeah. imagine that when you get a book advance, you live off it for the time that it takes you to right. write the book, right? And $15,000 uh, that you have to take out taxes and agent yeah. fees. There's no way that you could live I was off still that. freelance writing when I did the first um, book. And when the first book was released, you know, as I mentioned, and I don't want to die poor, I was having some really hard financial struggles. I, it was like, you know, just when I thought I was secure, something happened. Um, and I wrote, I don't want to die poor through a lot of struggle. It was some of the very mm-hmm. things that I thought I had just gotten over. And even this yeah. year, there are a lot of people uh, my age. I turned 36 um, in April um, on Easter Sunday, which I thought was the day we were supposed to go outside or something and play. That's what I heard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this is the second financial crisis of my adulthood, you know? Yeah, this is the second once in a generation yeah. financial crisis that your generation has had to go through. Um uh, well, we got to take a quick break here. We're talking to Michael Arsenault. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. This is Livewire Radio. We will be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. 
I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you've got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to Fully.com slash Livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash Livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well. And just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to the Livewire house party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank at my house. Elena Passarello is at her place in Corvallis, Oregon. And we're talking to Michael Arsenault, who is in Harlem right now. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. Um, how much debt did you actually incur in student loans uh, to, to graduate from Howard University? Um, about a hundred thousand. Um, I ended up having an extra year. Um, I had some health issues. I was basically overexerting myself trying to finish on time. So that kind of contributed Mm -hmm. to another problem. So about a hundred thousand. Uh, can you talk about getting a call on Christmas Eve? Yeah. That seems like that was a rough moment for you. I am back home for Christmas and sometimes I can't, um, always, in the past I hadn't been able to afford always to go home for Christmas. Um, it was home. It was bad. I mean, not bad enough. It was nice to be home, but it was also like, the twin bunk bed that I slept in as a child, um, stretched out. Um, Do you have any of the same posters still up? Oh, there. Everything is still there, except it just looks kind of sad sometimes. But um, <laughs> it's, a lot of it is still there. Particularly the Mickey Mouse Rock in the House posters. So I actually could see that while they called. <laughs> and it's Christmas Eve morning around what seven something. Like I literally just woke up. I flew in the night before. It's Christmas Eve. If I didn't have the money two days ago, I'm not probably going to have it for you today. And even if I did, it's Christmas Eve. Leave me alone, you heartless person. Um, and she wasn't even like the meanest, but it's the, 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 the act itself was mean. And, and that chapter is about how cruel a lot of the bill collectors can be to people who they presume just by virtue of struggling that they're so much better than. So they kick them when they're down. There's this stigma attached to like getting a phone call uh, asking when the money w- is going to come. But then when you look at, you know, I, I hope you don't mind me saying like $800 a month when you're 23 years old. No, I'm, that, you know, I, just, yeah, I'm glad you said it because now it's even oh, it's all been over a thousand. Like the idea that I, I'm expected to pay that. That's a mortgage, you know. Yeah, like, <laughs> I've been paying them. I pretty much have had a, the equivalent an, of a subprime mortgage loan. It's the educational equivalent of that because private debt in particular, um, black people carry a heavier burden of that. We disproportionately make up that hundred billion of the trillion that's in private debt because we kind of innate, not innately, but we, because of the dis, um, disparities in this country don't have as much and people pry on us and take advantage because they do right. know how, you know, particularly black, it's black college graduates and most black people graduate from black colleges. It's, 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 it's ingrained. Really? The scam is ingrained in the system. <laughs> yeah. I teach at a, a, a non HBCU. I mm-hmm. teach at just a, a state school and I often encounter 
young students, but not necessarily just young people who have just been told their whole lives to, to follow your dream, make it happen, do the work, and then they academically make it, but no, there's no conversation about how they're going to pay for it that's realistic. And, yeah. and, and that's when people get into these situations that seem, you know, unsustainable, right? And we also don't talk about the fact that, like, whether we like it or not, we're not as in control of our faith as we like to admit. You know, I, yeah. I, I own the fact that I took out the loans while I complained about the system itself, but also, you know, acknowledge I graduated during a Great Recession and yeah. <laughs> media, as I understood it, to be imploding. I didn't go in right. there with like these, oh, I'm just going to intern and but like basically like right. the rich white folks who can do it for free and then I'll right. magically waltz into this job and be paid all this. I knew what it was and took the sacrifices and theme my life around it anyway. It's just when I graduated, there just was literally nothing sure. there. And as of right now, you know, I feel bad for a lot of college graduates and high school graduates. There's nothing there. It's not their fault. This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Michael Arsenault. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. And you just sort of mentioned it, and it comes up in this book, which is like the media industry in particular, it stays very white yes. because being able to do an internship for free, being able to work for no money is itself privilege. Right. And it keeps a lot of people who have to make money every day to just pay their bills and have food. It keeps them out of the system. Yeah, and I've even acknowledged that that even of the few black people that I've met across media, I don't think even a lot of them realize that even being middle class and being able to afford these sacrifices is a privilege. The fact that I was basically just skimped by and doing a lot of those things is like a privilege. That's like literally just one lucky step I had than somebody else. And the people, the black middle class I'm talking about, maybe just two steps ahead of me. It's, it's not that I wouldn't say, don't do what you want to do. You can always find ways to make money, but writing has been devalued itself. The people that are literally writing the articles, trying to tell them how to find a job, don't know where their next check is going to come from, sadly. (laughs) What do you think a fair solution to this would be? Would it just be to basically forgive all student loan debt? Like how, how can we actually try to fix this problem? Um, I write about debt cancellation um, towards the end of the book. I ended up, you know, literally going back in and changing some stuff based on what happened with the Morehouse commencement in 2019 and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both bringing about debt cancellation to the uh, conversation in a really impactful way. Um, It shouldn't be lost on a lot of people that Joe Biden, of all people, is Mm -hmm. now even mentioning debt cancellation. So I think that's great. But I think debt cancellation, there's so many studies that already show it would literally boost the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, it would cause people my age to actually buy houses mm-hmm. and the, all these things that you tell us to do. Sure. Hopefully, mm-hmm. um, a change in power will allow us to really reset this country because, um, you know, one thing pe- folks keep telling me is my book is so timely now. I'm like, it was timely before this. That's the problem. And we really mm-hmm. have to rectify it. Yeah. I, I mean, is that where you find maybe some slight little bit of hope, Michael Arsenault, that this has been so uh, destabilizing and our very way of life has been so disrupted that maybe when we rebuild the next version of our life as a country, maybe we can actually rebuild it in a slightly better fashion? You know what? Even I can't take Jesus and I don't know how to pour. It's a lot of dark material, but I would like to think they all end on like a hopeful note. So I'm hopeful about this situation. I would like to think that it will still get better if for no other reason than we just don't have any choice but to be better. Um, Because if this is the way we keep going, it will ultimately be at our own peril and fault one way or the other. So I would like to think 
people are going to finally wake up. Um, yeah. So yeah. let's be better. I, is that is that hopeful enough right now for a pandemic? <laughs> uh, that's more than that's more than I can muster. So my hat's off to you, uh, Michael Arsenault. Uh, this his new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor, and it has a, a kind of grim title, but it is just written mm-hmm. with such creativity and heart and smarts. It's, I re- highly recommend. It's a great book, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've had so much fun. Thank you for having me. This is the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank in my house. Elena Passarello is at her house. And we asked the audience this week, what is a positive change that you're going to keep from these weird COVID times? Mm -hmm. And on that subject, Elena, you and I embarked on a sort of self-improvement challenge uh, with three elements. Uh, Over the course of the past week, we were supposed to be drinking 64 ounces of water a day. Tracking our phone hygiene habits, which if people heard the beginning of the show, I did terrible at. And then send three compliments a day to people via text. Using your phone, things. it should be noted, via text. So I know. So. I realized when we put this together that those were kind of competing ideas. Um, uh, okay, let's start with the water. Uh, how did you do on drinking 64 ounces of water a day? Well, I, I already drink about 80 ounces of water a day. So... That's a lot. That might be too much. Well, somebody told me once that you should drink half your body weight in ounces, and I weigh about a buck fifty. So I figured, you know, somebody just like a random person outside of a bar said that. That doesn't sound medically very reliable. It was like a doctor or a personal trainer or somebody. I've heard it more than once, and and I like drinking that much water. Like I'm thirsty a lot. So what I did with this one is I upped. Uh, 80 ounces to a full gallon, 127 ounces a day, uh, which I don't recommend. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be good for your digestive system if you've never done it before, but I did. Wow. I actually accomplished this pretty easily because uh, 64 ounces is basically six 12-ounce cans of club soda, which is like the standard size can. have one right in front of me. What? And I drink... Easily six of these a day. We just get whatever club soda is on sale at the grocery store. We're very <laughs> indiscriminate. That's nice. So it's just like random variety of strange, like gravy flavored club soda. Why do we have that? I don't know. It was the, it was two for five bucks. What's your burp um, factor now that you've high? Been- <laughs> I'll tell you. Very. That was a uh, that was something I hadn't really factored in. And you know, uh, I do a lot of audio recording from this tiny room that I'm in right now. And it was a battle this week. No wonder. Keep- you- you got that, that new mic down. screen. You burped yeah, the other exactly. one off. Exactly. Um, all right. How are you with your phone hygiene, which is the actual term for just being more intentional about when you are on your phone and when you are off your phone? Although in my case, oh there really? Was, there was a literal component of I was going to try to not take the phone into the bathroom. Um, I didn't know that. I thought it was just I just cleaned my phone every day. I didn't. <laughs> is that is that not what we were supposed to do? No, the term don't is... take it into the bathroom, which I never do because I'm I'm just so afraid I'm going to drop it in the sink or the toilet or something. So I never take really? my phone to the bathroom out of fear. Oh, well, I'm glad that you've already you you nipped that in the bud because you know it's it's part of my ritual in there. Not the using of the bathroom facilities so much as just being in there, brushing my teeth, but I'm watching TikTok on there or oh. I'm listening to a podcast or. Right. I, maybe sometimes I am sitting down, I'm scrolling through Twitter and just getting worked up about, you know, the political scene in this country. So my plan was I brought in a bunch of old New Yorkers, which have been <laughs> eyeing me this whole quarantine. Sure. Made for the like, bathroom. 
Exactly. And I put them like very intentionally. I put the stack of New Yorkers on the bathtub uh, so that I would see them when I was in there. And then I would read them and I would be come to you a much smarter person this week on the show. And I just never cracked any of those New Yorkers. And every oh. time I walked in the bathroom, I realized I just had my phone with me by habit. Oh, no. And then mm-hmm. it was just this morning and it was time for us to record. Why don't you take that stack of New Yorkers that's on your commode and uh, <laughs> put it by your bedside table and then throw the phone in the bathroom yeah. where, where it belongs, apparently, and then right. you'll be fine. That's uh, Boy, we have really gotten somewhere with this conversation. Yeah. The other thing we were <laughs> supposed to do as part of our um, you know week of living moss was send three compliments a day to people via text message. This mm-hmm. is one of those things that seems like such a nice gesture but made me feel deeply weird when I was doing it. Same. 100% same. I'm so glad you said that. I felt, I love complimenting people and I believe that we should, but I, I, tell me about why you felt weird and I'll see if it's the same as I me. think people maybe thought that I had been diagnosed with some sort of terminal <laughs> illness. Because it's like, when well, you get a text out of the clear blue sky that just says like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I've always really appreciated yeah. <laughs> um, that time you helped me move out of my dorm right. or whatever. But I do think people's days were brightened like, I mean, who doesn't like to get a compliment uh, right. via text message? How did it go for you? Um, well, I, I, ha- I just felt strange. I felt in the, the first day, I felt, I felt like it was going to, people were going to see through what I was doing or feel like it was fake or, you know. Um, and so then I just texted David twice that he had a cute butt because I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Your partner. <laughs> yeah. And then I read a couple of things that some friends of mine had written that I had meant to read. And then I wrote them a compliment about what they had written. So in that respect, like doing the compliment exercise made me engage with compliment worthy material that my friends were doing. So that felt more organic, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, What did the audience uh, say as an answer to the question of a positive change that they're going to keep from this time? Uh, Here's one from Nick. Uh, The positive change that Nick hopes to hold on to wearing a mask. So I only have to do a half of a face of makeup every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like I I actually, I don't mind the mask. I just like not having to concentrate on if I have like a derp face going on. (laughs) Like, I mean, seriously, like I just like, I like being in the store, but knowing Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, most of my face is covered. It's actually kind of a relaxing feeling for me. Yeah. What else is the audience uh, telling you about slight positive changes they've made that they're going to try to keep with? Uh, here's one from Ginger. Using the good flatware at every meal. I love that because yeah. don't you feel like there's like parts of your house? You remember like the famous you know room full of furniture that nobody's ever allowed to sit on? Like Yeah, often covered in plastic. Yeah, I, I think it's cool to actually use the things in your home that you think are nice. Yeah. And I think that you're right. It's like probably before the pandemic, there were people, people had stuff stashed away and in boxes and that's the good China. And Mm -hmm. that's the, this is the, the good couch and everything. We try to not overuse it. And then it's like, well, we're just all trapped at home. We got to do something. Mm -hmm. And so you start breaking that stuff out and then you just realize, I mean, what was I saving this for? Like, you know, what John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're out making other plans. Mm -hmm. It's like, your real life is happening. Use the good china. Yeah. You might as well. Life is what happens when you're busy using the crappy silverware. I think that was the first draft of that. <laughs> yes. And I, th- I think it greatly improved upon revision. <laughs> yeah, it scans okay. better. <laughs> what, what else is the audience telling you? Here's one from Marielle. 
Marielle's uh, positive change is being okay with chaos. That is such a biggie. Yeah, right not now. bad. I feel like I have. I, it's right before we started recording this, uh, this is a true story. I was feeling just really kind of anxious. I tend to get a little mm-hmm. anxious before showtime. Mm-hmm. And I just walked out of my yard and I picked up dog poop. <laughs> and I had, I didn't have any shoes on. I'm just standing in the grass and it's like kind of a nice day here. And I just did this moment of trying to be present. And I was mm-hmm. just like, everything in my life feels like I do. I can't control it right now. There's mm-hmm. so many unknowns for all of us. But what I know is in this moment, I'm standing here in the grass. Uh, it's a nice day. The birds are singing. And yes, I am picking up dog poop, but regardless, this is a good moment for me. And it really calmed me down. It's something mm. that's that idea of just being okay with the fact that we don't have control of our lives right now. Yeah. One thing we can control, Elena, is who we invite over <laughs> to the Live Wire house party. And I'm very excited about this next guest because I've been a fan of his writing for a long time. And we have never been able to get him out to Portland for the live show just for scheduling reasons. But now, in the midst of this pandemic, we can just, like, zoom it up with anyone we want. Uh, (laughs) Daniel M. Ortberg writes Slate's Dear Prudence advice column. Uh, He's got a new book out called Something That Will Shock and Discredit You, which is about his journey as a trans person. Of course, it's about so much more than just that. Also, Anne of Green Gables and HGTV, (laughs) (laughs) a variety of great topics. So let's invite him on over. Daniel M. Ortberg, welcome to the Livewire House Party. Thank you so much. I have to admit that I was a little bit nervous to interview you because this book, it has so many literary references in it. And I am not maybe the most well-read person, but I'm also the kind of person that wants to pretend that I know things. And so I was thinking that during the interview, there's a great chance that you might say, oh, well, as you know, uh, Kierkegaard says or whatever. And my impulse is going to be to say, yeah, I know that when I don't, but then I get further into a conversation where like the water just keeps getting deeper. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking if maybe if you make a passing literary reference and I don't get it, I'm not going to stop the show, but I might just ding this bell. just a, (laughs) like a subtle indicator. So if that happens, I just want you to know what's going on. May I just say, I share your tendency to always want to say, yes, I agree in any conversation um, which also sometimes leads to pretending I've read something I haven't or making yeah. promises that I can't keep. Mm-hmm. Daniel, you really have read uh, a lot of stuff and, and it can tell from reading this book and you're not putting it out in a show-offy way. It just seems to be a way that you interpreted the world or made meaning of the world for yourself as a young person was reading a lot, right? Was that a big part of your childhood? Yeah, very much so. And, and thank you too. I, it was my hope that this was not the kind of book that you would pick up and feel as though I have to go read 40 other books before I can read this one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, the, the frequent references and the, and the ways that it sort of plays around in, in a variety of, of genres, um, it's helpful if you've read some of the things I'm talking about, but I think usually I'm able to contextualize it enough that you will not be lost and think like, I better go back and replicate your childhood before I can read this book. Um, But yeah, very much so. Uh, That was a huge part of of my childhood was both reading a lot, but then also like trying to watch as much TV as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, We always had like an hour long daily TV limit that I was always trying to scam my way around. And I think that's part of what made me canny and savvy and like the artful dodger. (laughs) Well, it's kind of interesting, uh, Daniel, because you write, I think it's like maybe even page one of this book. You say it's easy enough to sell out an evangelical childhood, which Mm -hmm. like that just immediately froze me in my tracks because I feel like my whole career and a lot of my actual like 
personal life is about pushing back on my evangelical childhood and yeah. like limited TV access. It has really defined my adult life. And and you're right. It's easy to just kind of, it's easy to, to I guess, maybe lean on that too much as a personality trait. Like I was raised evangelical. You seem to have a more nuanced relationship with your childhood. Well, I, I, and I think specifically what I meant in that moment in terms of the idea of selling out the childhood is referring to the shorthand that kind of in the popular imagination allows people to conjure up an idea of an evangelical childhood and then move on. So it, it wasn't exactly like, I want to make sure I say really nice things about it because Lord knows there's already enough pressure there, you know, yeah. of like don't air the dirty laundry or don't be too critical or don't be a bad sport or don't look like a whiner. Those are all problems that I think come up whenever you write a memoir. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it was maybe more the sense of, I don't want to go for the quick and easy beats of, isn't this ridiculous and bananas? Um, right. And then have, um, have that just be that. Cause there's also ways that I want to try to invite the reader into that experience without going first to, wow, this is so terrible and bizarre. I wish I was out of here. It's like, I, I also want to go back and say like, Yes, terrible or not terrible, bizarre or not bizarre, let's first visit that place and that time and think about what it was like. And, and we can save some of the later judgments for later. Yeah, we're talking to Daniel M. Ortberg. He's the author of the book, Something That May Shock and Discredit You. This is Livewire. Uh, what did you pitch to your publishers uh, for this book? Like, what did, you, what did you propose this book look like, sound like, read like? I think at one point... I used the expression poetic essay yelling, which I never really <laughs> defined or, or quite made good on. I, I often have a difficult part with the sort of elevator pitch part of a project. Um, so I tend to either take about 10 pages to fill out a, a part of a book proposal that should be two, or I just try to airily dismiss something I can't quite figure out. And I'll just say, just trust me, um, which is easier to do when you've worked with someone for a long time and they've seen you write other books. Um, but yeah, I, I think I pitched it as some version of exploring various uh, books and TV shows and myths that I used to define myself as a young person and then revisiting them again in the light of transition um, and also with a little bit of like Lionel Hutz sprinkled on the top. <laughs> from The Simpsons. <laughs> yes, yes. Is that where the title comes from? It is. Oh, yeah. that's my favorite literary reference in the book now. <laughs> if you want masculine showboating, you can't do better than Phil Hartman. Oh, yeah, right? yes. Oh. And then the, the suitcase falls open and it's, I believe it's like an apple core and <laughs> like a skull or something is what Lionel Hutz is bringing to defend he's, his client. He's bringing so much to the table and yet he carries so little with him. Yeah. Um, you, you write in this book about not wanting to write something that felt like maybe a too on-the-nose or trope-filled story about transitioning, which, by the way, is written about with such a light touch and so so deftly that it, it's the, this book is hilarious and also really heartfelt. Thank you. But I also think that some of those tropes get started because there are probably a shared experience. How did you... How did you kind of balance those two things? Yeah. So it wasn't like, oh gosh, I have these five books in mind that did it and I hate them. Um, it, it was more like there's often different versions of any story that I might want to tell someone. And I think actually kind of like what you were mentioning earlier about saying you've read a book that you haven't read. There's ways in which it can feel tempting to, to think, I'm pretty sure this shorthand will get across enough of what I'm trying to say that mm -hmm. it'll work. It's not the full version, but it'll work. 
But then later, if we try to have a more in-depth conversation, I'm going to have to backpedal a lot of it. So you do that kind of like calculation of what version am I going to do right now? So I think it had more to do with this fear of I'm going to tell um, a bad version of this story that will be technically accurate, but not quite true. And it's going to have something to do with like journeys yeah. And uh, saying things like becoming and like referencing Dusty Springfield's son of a preacher man. And, um, <laughs> right. Because it's right there. It's yeah. too much. And it would be kind of true, but it would also be sacrificing, I think, reality for a sort of uh, shorthand or a, a waving away of, of something complicated. So I think it was mostly just like, well, if I put it in the book, I won't do it. <laughs> right. Because it's it's pretty early in the book, so it was almost like a admonition to yourself to not like, get too like Hollywood with it, like a big post-it note, like remember not to write this table of contents. <laughs> right. I, yeah, right. Actually, later then did hear from a, a friend of mine who had thought when they were reading through the book that that was the actual table of contents, and they were like, "Well, when are we going to get to that chapter? I want to read it." <laughs> um, you moved to New York City fairly recently. Right. How, how is New York City right now? And what does a, a typical day look like for you? Very recently. Yeah, we moved here in January. So we got like two months of being like, we live in New York. That's terrific. <laughs> and now it's like, we live where you can look at New York, yeah. um, which is strange. But, um, you know, I, I have to say as weird as the timing has been as, and as awful as it is, uh, the degree to which New York has been hit. I love this neighborhood. Um I, one of the things I'm really grateful for is the number of mutual aid organizations that have been um, forming in, in in Brooklyn, especially. Uh, yeah, I've seen you last... talking about that on Twitter a lot, uh, engaging in, in that stuff. It was, you know, for me at least, and, and we've been really lucky during during these stay-at-home orders, we've both been able to keep our jobs um, mm-hmm. and, and we've both uh, been able to recover fairly fairly quickly from what may or may not have been that's that illness or just a, another kind. Um, oh, wow. But, I didn't realize. So you and your partner were, were both sick at some point. Yeah, we, we at, at different times and, you know, wow. we were not able to get tested. Luckily, we were able to take care of ourselves at home. So we're both doing well now, which is great. Um, but I would also find often like, oh, the days bleed together and I can do just enough to sort of keep my head above water. But it, it, it sometimes I like, oh, I miss the old days when I got serotonin. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and one of the things that helped when other things didn't was... I can sign up for a volunteer dispatch schedule. I can do intake. I can, you know, put people in touch with one another and make sure that various requests get like taken care of and like move things across a spreadsheet. And it's like, great, someone got their meds today. And that was just like, that. that's the sort of thing that kind of, I think helps make you feel like, oh, today was worth getting up for mm-hmm. when it's like my other options are worry endlessly about the future or rewatch 30 Rock. <laughs> That's what yeah. I'm doing right now. <laughs> I often rewatch 30 Rock. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Daniel M. Ortberg. Uh, his book is Something That May Shock and Discredit You. This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank along with Elena Passarello. Um, you're, you were talking about being able to uh, still do your job. And one of your jobs is uh, as the Dear Prudence advice columnist for Slate. Yes. Um, you've had that job for a while, right? Yeah. Gosh, I, I think it's coming up on four years. Uh, fairly soon. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, was it helpful uh, in writing advice to other people or challenging to be going through your own transition as other people are asking you questions about their life? Mm-hmm. 
often I have found because of the way that that job is so, you know, it's a well-oiled machine and it's very like, it's very straightforward. Like I know when I'm doing a shift and when I'm not, and when (laughs) I'm not doing a shift, I'm not thinking about it too much. Um, so often it would be like, this is great. This is Monday. And so my thing today is I help other people with their problems. Um, and there were times, I think, especially before I had come out publicly that felt very like my whole body is one big nerve and (laughs) it hurts and everyone's looking at me and I hate it. And, um, so there were certainly ways in which it could kind of, uh, feel like a reprieve. And then there were other times where it felt, um, anxiety inducing. And then I think coming out was really, really helpful because just before that I was like, what if my voice starts changing on the podcast and everyone writes in and they say, do you have a cold? And I have to say, Mm. no, I'm trans. And then they say, well, we thought you had a cold. And then they (laughs) yell at you and, you know, just the kind of fears you can build up in your mind before something happens. It's like it can go badly a million times over and over again in your head. Mm -hmm. And it can only, even if it does go badly, it can only go badly one way at a time. Mm -hmm. Uh, this book is obviously about your experience and and transitioning is a big part of obviously your life and of what people talk to you about. Mm-hmm. But are you looking forward to a point uh, in the future where it is a smaller and smaller part of what you talk about and of how people maybe think of your work? Hmm. Certainly, I think I, I can imagine myself really looking forward to engaging with transition in my work as a writer, as a person, as a part of my community um, in ways that have to do with things other than early transition, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, I I can't imagine wanting to get to a point in my life where I would want to feel like it was less a part of it or, or something that we just considered as something that happened a long time ago and is no longer especially relevant. But I do think that shift from the kind of questions of early transition, um, into sort of medium stage or, or, or having it happened, you know, more than 10 years ago, I I do look forward to that because I think you, you have different concerns, interests, questions, curiosities, desires, et cetera, um, when you, you know, didn't just come out three years ago, um, when you came out 10 years ago, 15, 20, I'm looking forward to, to being an old, old trans person. I think that will be really interesting. What are you hoping people take away from the experience of reading the book? What would be, what would be a good outcome? I think of a number of good outcomes. Uh, mostly I think a, a sense of, um, elasticity, a sense of, potentially wanting to read something else as a follow-up, um, uh, potentially a sense of, um, ways to think about things that can be challenging or difficult, but with, as you say, a light touch, I often want to do that. Um, I think that's worth doing and not just, not just in the sense of shying away from weightiness, but, um, in being able to shift quickly from, from a number of different modes of engagement. Um, if they just want to treat the pilgrim's progress a bit more goofily and right. a bit more excessively, um, that would, that would be a good outcome. I think. Um, Lionel Hutz in the pilgrim's progress. <laughs> oh, God, I would watch that. That'd be so good. Yeah. Uh, maybe that can be, that can be a future project, Daniel. Uh, I feel <laughs> like you'd be the, time per- on my hands. you're the perfect person to write that too, with your love of Lionel Hutz and your deep knowledge of uh, the pilgrim's progress. So uh, we will look for that. Hey, thank you so thank much you. for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Stay safe out there in New York, okay? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. That was Daniel M. Ortberg. His new book is Something That May Shock and Discredit You. This is the Livewire House Party coming to you by way of PRX. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a really quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we have music from a Livewire favorite, 
prom queen will be here. So stick around for that. Back in a moment. This is Livewire. Special thanks this episode to Tia Marston of Portland, Oregon, and Carrie Bouchard of Fort Worth, Texas. Tia and Carrie are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support the show with a donation each month. And we are very grateful for that support. It is genuinely what allows us to keep this show going. So a big thanks to Tia and Carrie. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello doing the show, of course, from our houses. All right, let's get uh, some music going at this here house party. Uh, summer is uh, feels like it's kind of here a little bit, or oh, at least yeah. it's on the way. It's sure. like 75 degrees where I am today. How's the weather where you are, Elena? I have shorts on. You you might not be able to tell, but uh, I have <laughs> on a, a business top and shorts Summertime Summer in the basement. I don't, <laughs> I this don't know. This is it's going sideways weird. fast. <laughs> anyway, I think we have the perfect musical guest to kind of help us get the dreamy summer vibes going. It's our friend, Celine Ramadan, a.k.a. Prom Queen. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Hello. Um, so we were just talking to a guest who is planning a cross-country move this summer, and you just moved like a week ago? Yes, I just moved within the same neighborhood I already live in, but it was harrowing. It was really tough to do. Really? What's the challenges of trying to move during a pandemic? Well, normally I'd ask a bunch of friends to help carry stuff, and I yeah. didn't exactly have that option. But I was trying to get rid of my couch because I don't want it anymore, and there's nowhere to just get rid of furniture. <laughs> Listen, during normal times, I don't want any part of a couch that's been out on the street. I know. Now let's throw a virus <laughs> situation on top yeah. of it. This is a bad time to be an unwanted couch or mattress. Yeah, this couch is, out there this couch is kind bin. of a nightmare. It's really, really hard to move. It's really heavy. So uh, now the couch is here in the studio and you can't see it. <laughs> you still have it? Yeah. We couldn't figure out what else to do with it. And so I ended up having to keep it. I've been in relationships like that where I'm the couch. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Celine, I mean, you are one of the most productive people when it comes to making stuff that I know. You're always writing music. You're shooting amazing videos. You're a video editor as well. Have you found that you're still as productive as normal during the pandemic? I mean, I could be. I could be making a lot more stuff. I'm sort of stopping myself from doing that. I'm, I'm being creative most days, but... I'm sort of a little bit gun shy about releasing stuff during this time. I'm a really big album person and I always associate albums with periods of time in my life whenever I discovered mm -hmm. that album. And to be someone to release music during this time, I just, it will always remind me of this time. Mm -hmm. and, I, yeah. and I just don't know if I want that. So I've been working on a lot of stuff, but kind of a little bit taking my time, being slower and maybe waiting a little bit to release it. Uh, what song are uh, you going to play for us? You know, there's an old Skeeter Davis song called End of the World where she talks about how it's like the end of the world because she lost mm -hmm. a love. And so this is my homage to her song. And it's about the apocalypse, but just more literally. <laughs> Not as an analogy for heartbreak. <laughs> yeah, so this song is called End of the World, and it's the first track off of Doomwop. All right, this is Prom Queen here on the Livewire House Party. Mm -hmm. 
That is Celine Ramadan, also known as Prom Queen, right here on the Livewire House Party. If you would like to get a vinyl copy of her album Midnight Veil, you can head over to promqueenband.bandcamp.com. Celine, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, everybody. That is going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Daniel M. Ortberg, Michael Arsenault, and, of course, Prom Queen. Livewire is brought to you in part by Fully, Alaska Airlines, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer, and Molly Pettit, our technical director, is our house party mixer. As always, a big thanks to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. We'd like to thank members Angela Gunderson of Phoenix, Arizona, and Anne Wendland of Vancouver, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. From PRX.